0: So, but what are we talking about today? Crimea. Yeah, the annexation of Crimea. That's not Uh, only what we're talking about.
1: It's a crime. Eh? (laughs) Oh, my God. you get
0: it? I do get it. You're a huge dork.
1: (laughs) Uh, um, Yeah, that's true. That's not all we're talking about, but that's what we're going to try to focus on. And in particular, kind of trying to, like, detail... The legality of it and then it's just also like what happened because i think people don't really know and then also giving our own hot takes on it
0: this topic is like all topics like potentially huge the reason we're focusing on the annexation is because that's what people like that's what put crimea on the map for westerners for modern westerners but it actually existed
1: before that <laughs> Yeah, it didn't just rise out of the ocean. <laughs> Actually, Putin made the peninsula in order to annex it. <laughs> We're
0: going to give, I'm going to try to give a fairly brief history of the territory, the area. It's going to be hard, but like a timeline, more like, not not an actual history.
1: What does that mean? <laughs> like, I'm not doing an analysis of the history of Crimea. I'm just telling you the history of it. No, the timeline, I mean,
0: like, I'm just going to focus on specific dates, not like, I guess that is a history in a very loose way.
1: It's not loose. It is a history. That's often how history is portrayed, isn't a timeline? Because it happened in the past. Yeah, maybe, but that's like basic bitch history. But that's what we're about. So we're we're alt basic bitches. We are. What does that mean? Grace and I broke down people into three different categories. Oh my! Oh my! Gosh. It's separated by gender, though. Do you want to hear what the ones for women are? Yes. Okay. There's basic. There's alt basic. Mm-hmm. and there's i think there's only three for women basic alt basic and worker <laughs> what the fuck is wrong with you people what is worker worker is just like people that go to work
0: really that's what you think of all the females in the world or you're talking about americans
1: you want to hear what the
0: male breakdown is wait can that just not be all the females in the world because that just doesn't work it does
1: <laughs> give no. me an example and i'll get and i'll put it in a category for you I, uh, no <laughs> women are complex beings i, I don't no. maybe
0: I, okay you're gonna have to define for me with okay fine just say the male ones
1: okay the male ones i uh, got okay, this says four because men are a little bit more complex than women it turns out um <laughs> <laughs> okay the men is oh i i'm sorry i'm i'm the the women does have four basic alt basic worker and nerd okay the the male side is nerd bro outdoor and hipster and in reality the male ones actually just break down into two categories which is nerd and bro so all the other ones can be pushed into bro
0: you think hipsters are a, a, a subsection of bros they're bros at heart no I think they're kind of like no what this is stupid God. <laughs> i hate simplifications. and also what about like radical people are they just alt basic
1: yeah or they're nerds (laughs) you but okay the thing is you can be a combination of personalities oh so it's a venn diagram it's a venn diagram for example i'm alt basic and nerd yeah you are
0: also what about freak you totally forgot about that freak is like its own category and you know it
1: no freaks are nerds (laughs) you forgot about the freak category (laughs) I like how that's like your one criticism. <laughs> but what about the freaks? I
0: feel like you just described like everyone at like at like in college or something. That doesn't really make sense because worker. Are you talking about like the working class and and also just like corporate people who just go to work? That's like their thing. Is they uh, just like so basically these things span across class and race and everything. Oh 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 yeah 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 totally.
1: What's the point of those kind
0: of simplifying
1: categories? Um the point is that it's fun. Yeah, also stupid. This is the meat of the podcast. <laughs> Wait, have you ever Have you ever caught your Have you ever caught your profile reflection in the mirror? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. Like a yeah. <laughs> yeah. This is going to be disaster. Yeah. Yeah. Yo, yo. It feels like I won't ever make it. <laughs> 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 Traffic's back up, Buck up to get off of this road. <sighs> Foot on the gas I where you got on in my zone. <laughs> this is She's in Russia. <laughs> and who are you?
0: I'm Lily, and I'm in Russia. <laughs> where in russia i'm in saint petersburg i live in saint petersburg wait is that what we (laughs) say? i live i live there i live here i have like an apartment
1: and a cat and stuff i
0: love when russians like i'm like speaking to them in russian and they're like oh and they're like where are you from and i'm like uh new york and they're like oh you're just so you're just like here for a couple days and i'm like are you hearing my russian like why would i a couple days uh are <laughs> yeah. like oh the tourists are getting really smart these days they just don't get they just don't get why i would want to live here so they like immediately assume i'm just just <laughs> visiting all right go ahead who are you i already
1: introduced myself i'm Smith. you did
0: i completely <laughs> yes. missed it
1: yep i introduced myself what do you think is gonna happen
0: is somebody blaming putin for this
1: <laughs> actually Putin po- it is the reason there was slavery in this country <laughs> not like directly but like yeah basically like this one guy jim Ludes, ludes i don't know and he has a, a thread in which he talks about their unmistakable ties between alt-right groups in charlottesville and russia and then he just like goes through basically and, like free associates for like 15 tweets Yeah, there's just like this new wave of thing where people are talking a lot about like the alt right's association with the Kremlin. Hmm. It's just like a free association thing. Like, it's not like necessarily actual connections, but it's just like talking about how there's some far right ideologies springing up across Europe right now that are consistent with far right ideologies in America. And then there's like this kind of weird presumption of Russian influence and i think part of it is because there are like some neo-nazis who like kind of praise putin a lot
0: oh yeah okay yeah well they've always that's always been the case i think
1: yeah but now it's like you can somehow bring that to the foreground of evidence that putin is the one who's like instigating this nationalism throughout the the globe which is like he's definitely contributing to it but i mean so are all the other leaders too
0: like I feel like the right has been admiring Putin as a leader in general for many yeah. years. The
1: whole strongman thing. They like really are attracted to that. They're like they, they like conceive of themselves as strong men and he's like a religious strongman and they like the same way people think about like manly movie stars where they're just like, Yeah, that's how I am too. That's how we <laughs> all should be. And you're just like, You're not like that though. Alright, but I wanna know what um what Russian state TV is saying about Charlottesville. I just
0: searched Channel 1, and um,
1: they had an article that was published like eight hours ago
0: about Charlottesville. And it was, I mean, it was basically just like fairly unremarkable. I mean, fairly just like telling telling what happened. Just in terms of language, the journalist who wrote this article very much portrayed like the Confederate supporting white supremacist neo-Nazi people as bad. But just linguistically, it was interesting because... They didn't use the word white supremacist ever. There was a reference at one point, before I say what they used, to those supporting African Americans or something.
1: Also just like a weird frame. Weird way to put it. Yeah.
0: But the way they described the white supremacists was fascist, alt-right. They used the word like okay. alt-right in Russian though. It, they didn't use any racially specific words, I guess. You know what I mean? Like, starting way, way, way back, between the 15th and 18th century. So before Crimea becomes under Russian control, in this, like, big span of time, it's par- It's like a Turkic vassal state of the Ottoman Empire. It's the center for slave raids into in, like, Slavic lands, in basically, like, modern-day Russia
1: and Ukraine. Wait, the, oh, sorry, the center for slave raids? What does that mean?
0: It means that it was, like, one of the places where... The people there would go into like a couple of different bodies but this is so it's now it's part of the ottoman empire at this point and it would be like groups of people going in and taking Um, ethnically Slavic people as slaves, like raiding an area in Ukraine and Russia and taking Slavic people as slaves and bringing them back to the Ottoman Empire. And Crimea was like the between zone. That's why I say center. So it's like where people were traded to go to other parts of the Ottoman
1: Empire. Wait, okay, this might be a really ignorant question, but that's not where the term Slavic people comes from, is it? I highly doubt that. Slavic and slave? Yeah. Or vice versa. I'm Googling. Oh my God! I'm right. I'm right. You are the English term "slave" derives from the ethnonym "Slav." In medieval wars, many Slavs were captured and enslaved, which led to the word Slav becoming synonymous to enslaved person. Damn. This is just sort of yeah. It's definitely like I think a lesser
0: known period of of slavery or like type of slavery probably, but it's also smaller than, for example, the Atlantic slave trade or like the Arab slavery of. African people by a lot. The estimate I saw the total people enslaved is like 3 million as opposed to like more like 12 to 20 million in the other ones. So, it's nice talking in these big numbers, isn't it? In any case, that's the period like at this point like the 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 land of Crimea, like the territory, there there are like Greeks, Persians, Romans on sort of the outer part like on the borders and like, steppe
1: nomadic peoples also on, on in the peninsula. I want to note real quick, like, where Crimea is, in case people just haven't looked at a map. It's like Ukraine is to the north, and then there's the Black Sea, and then just to the south is Turkey. And the Crimean Peninsula is a part of, we'll get into that, but it is a peninsula that juts out southward from Ukraine. To the east is a part of Russia that dips down next to Kazakhstan and Ukraine. But it's it's worthwhile to go look at a map just so you can picture what's going on here. It's kind of a big peninsula, actually. It's the size I, of Maryland.
0: I don't know. I just, I'm trying to give an idea, like the concept of there being a lot of different peoples there is important, I think. Yeah. And like the interior and exterior being occupied by different people. But the Huns and like the Mongols are just one of a number of invading steppe nomads so um let's move on from this time 1774 when the crimean peninsula becomes independent there's a treaty basically between russians and the o- russian empire and ottoman empire um but effectively it's like a russian satellite state just nine years later in 1783 Catherine the great formally annexes it so this is an important year 1783 because this is
1: when america is seven years old it's an important year for America, going off to first grade. <laughs> America's going to first grade. Everyone else has been adults for a long
0: time. That is Europeanized, colonized America. Let's be. What?
1: What? Versus like South America? Versus Native
0: Americans. Jesus. You, you erasure of history, girl.
1: <laughs> it's, okay, so this is an
0: important year, 1783, because this is when Sevastopol... Uh, the city is built as like a, a naval base for Russia. That is going to be really, like basically the, the history of that base and who has control over it uh, is super, super relevant to the annexation that happens in 2014. Uh, so 1783, it all started there. Okay, and then like under the under the Russian Empire and up to the revolution and after, but like say like, up to the Re- Russian revolution, it's like a, like a vacation resort spot I mean, it still is today, but, but people, it's one of the, one of the places where in like the 19th century, people would go to like, you know, rest by the sea and become healthy, you know, those kind of places, hmm. Yeah. Like healthy resorts. I love that concept. I know. It's such a great like Victorian image of like the ladies in like full dresses, like by the <laughs> sea being like so hot, but they can't. And, like salty. <laughs> like hot and salty and covered in clothing and they have parasols. Parasol. <laughs> parasols oh my god who am i i really can't think or speak Parasols. after the revolution basically like the status like the geopolitical status of crimea is that it's an autonomous republic which it will become later as well but it's an autonomous republic within the russian soviet federative socialist republic of the ussr which is composed of like a bunch of different republics, 16 different republics, different provinces, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And the capital of which is Moscow.
1: Do you want to introduce who the the Tatar people are?
0: I can try. There's Crimean Tatars and then there's the ones who live in Tatarstan, which is like the republic on the mainland. They have different histories. So when you talk about the people, the, the Tatars living in Crimea, you call them the Crimean Tatars. So Rus was before the Russian Empire. There was Rus, which the center of which was Kiev um, in the 13th century. And the, like at, there's a period of history in which that's called like the Mongol yoke. It's like during the medieval times when um, the like Rus, which is which will become the Russian Empire, is ruled by the Golden Horde. Yeah, I also realized that I completely blew over <laughs> a little Important period in the 19th century, which is the Crimean War. Oh my god. <laughs> the big picture is that the Ottoman Empire is like basically falling apart, and Britain and France are involved because they don't want the Russian Empire to gain new land at the expense of the Ottoman Empire. But then, like us, but those aren't the public reasons. The public reasons are like more petty, but also religious. So it's a bit confusing but during that time there's 300,000 tatars live yeah living on the peninsula and 200,000 are it's a little bit confusing the wording here they emigrate like not necessarily forcibly uh i don't want to say that they like oh they just they just wanted to leave like they it was bad and in a way you could call it like a forcible deportation but it's a little bit different from the one that happened in the 20th century. 1944, another very important date, is the year of mass deportation of Crimean Tatars. And it's referred to as an ethnic cleansing. But basically what happened was in the very short span of time, again, around 200,000 Crimean Tatars were basically loaded up into cattle cars, trains. And like... Yeah, in really horrible conditions. The trains, like, didn't leave right away. They were just sitting there for a a few days. Oh. Yeah, so that's horrible. And then finally the trains leave. And this is everyone. So, like, women, children, everyone. And these trains are, people are basically, a lot of people are brought to what is now Uzbekistan. Why did this happen? Allegedly, so this is Stalin's, or rather, this is his punishment for the alleged Nazi collaboration of Crimean Tatars. Crimea was occupied by Germans, by the Nazis, during World War II. I mean, as with a lot of places, there was some collaboration, as in, like, local people joining the army. Stalin is doing this as, like, a, you know, sort of post-war, part of his post-war paranoia that we talked about in the Bidabidjan episode when he 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 basically, like, starts hunting out what are they called? Rootless Cosmopolitans, which is code for Jewish people. This mass punishment, there really was collaboration of some people, but this is like a really, really extreme reaction um, because it's like the entire population. And a lot of people died in that transition and died once they were in wherever they were deported to. But like the other part that's important to remember, like what we talked about with the Jewish people, The remember we talked about how the, um the anti the Jewish anti-fascist league like cultural leaders formed this this collective to you know like help the Soviet war effort and later were persecuted for being collaborating with the the enemy right and sort of the same overall stories happening here like Crimean tartars more of them served in the red army for sure than like collaborated with the German army uh but in the end, everyone's punished for that. So it's part of like Stalin's sort of like really irrational, frightening, paranoid punishments that happened post-war. You're almost done with the timeline. So then, 1954. 54. Our next big date. Yeah. Now Nikita Khrushchev, known for the key apartments, <laughs> <laughs> most um, famous for episode eight. Most famous for his work in contributing to the content of episode eight. <laughs> So he's in power, and this is a weird just like sort of, I don't know what you t- would call this. Basically, Crimea, the, the now oblast, right, that's, that's its status, a province, is transferred from the Russian SSR to the Ukrainian SSR. Khrushchev
1: does it as like a, what is that called? Like a, a gesture or something. A gesture, yeah. Like the other reason I came across was like it was kind of a way of apologizing for Stalinism.
0: I think that there were like I think there were intern I think there were reasons that we don't know about but yeah there are different theories about it like that he wanted to that Khrushchev just like had a soft spot for Ukraine
1: yeah that's that's also something like we should probably note or you should note because I think you know more about it than I do what just just the like Ukraine Russia history it's not distinct really in a lot of ways and a lot of people that are like russian leaders are known for being like russian artists and stuff are ukrainian
0: yeah 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 i mean that's so under the soviet union and under the russian empire but it's like that's why this this um little transfer it's it's symbolic and has symbolic meaning but like it doesn't really have practical meaning because like within the soviet union people borders are sort of less formalized there's all these different types of statuses like it's an autonomous republic it's like oblast. uh it's a social one of the yeah socialist republics yeah that transfer doesn't like necessarily change everyday life for people
1: and 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 like the and something we should know is like they speak russian in crimea
0: there's definitely like a russian-speaking population in eastern ukraine and that's where like the war in Ukraine is taking place. Which We're not addressing on this episode because we don't have the time. Yeah, there are people, there are Russian speakers and were Russian speakers during the Soviet Union in Crimea, but at some point Russian became the sort of official language of education in the Soviet Union. It's like in a lot of places people, people speak Russian, but they also speak Ukrainian and other languages of the many, many, many ethnicities and republics the the history of borders we've we touched on also in the in the episode on Peter when we were talking about Jewishness in the Soviet Union because this whole area of eastern Europe has had like shifting borders for centuries and it's just an important thing to note it's really an impo- it's extremely important especially when we talk about the annexation in 2014 cuz like i think especially for Americans it's hard for us to at least in at least in sort of a political sense not in a legal sense really understand the implications of saying like this is the territory of this sovereign state and that's the territory of that sovereign state because we have a very shallow understanding of that because we're like well we know what america is yeah like we know where the lines are and they've always been there but that's not even that's
1: also false it it is also false but that that history really i is like not taught to us
0: the history of america becoming america and like taking land from people
1: i mean i guess it is but in like third grade and then you just don't like really talk about it anymore Yeah,
0: I mean, yeah, in a sense, like, we should have a sort of more intuitive understanding of, like, the fluidity of borders, given our, how our country, like, very recently formed.
1: But the whole, like, manifest destiny thing requires you to believe that there's, like, an ultimate form of America, right? And, like, now we've been taught to believe that we've reached it. And, like, even the just outline of America is, feels very distinct and, like, yep, there's America. And so it feels very, like, stabilized. For sure, for our lifetime, um, and like what we're taught, yeah, and I think,
0: yeah, you're right. The sort of ideology of manifest destiny makes it feel like we were just moving and moving till we got to the ocean, and now we can't go anymore. Yeah, you know what I mean. It's like we did it, <laughs> and then we just sort of like added on a couple of weirdos, a couple yeah. of rogues, <laughs> like Hawaii. You know Ain't there,
1: Hawaii? We got any Hawaii listeners?
0: <laughs> anyway, yeah. So I'm gonna. I, I have a, a big picture at the end, but let's go back to the timeline. That was 1954 where we stopped. And then, and then pretty much the next big date is the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991. Nothing happened between those times. <laughs> Just kidding. And, and this is another sort of like geopolitical status shift. Ukraine becomes independent, becomes an independent state. Most of Crimea, except for the city of Sebastopol, which still has a weird special status, the rest of Crimea becomes the autonomous republic of Crimea within Ukraine, the independent state. And then within Sebastopol, and this is getting really, really relevant to the annexation, um, there's still that naval port, um, which was an important Soviet port. And now we're in the post-Soviet years, so we've got to figure out who's going to be there, like Ukraine and Russia, because we were both there before, It's all the Soviet Union. And so in 1997, Ukraine, now, like, independent Ukraine and Russia, sign a partition treaty regarding the Black Sea fleet. Basically, Ukraine's going to, like, lease out the naval base, naval facilities to Russia. They signed it for 20 years. 10 years?
1: No, that's 20.
0: No, because in 2010, no. Oh, 2010. Sorry, 10 years. Because in 2010, they have to re... They have to extend the lease. And they extend it in, in a little exchange between Ukraine and Russia, where Russia's like, okay, we'll give you, like, cheaper gas, and you give us an extended lease on our naval base. And that brings us up to Annexation station. Be, I mean, there are all these, like, parallels and repetitions throughout history regarding this territory, the territory of Crimea. You know what I mean? Like, the annexation under Catherine the Great in 1753... Um, again there's an annexation in 2014 there's a like during the crimean war in the 19th century there is a huge basically forcible emigration of crimean tartars that also happens in the 20th century under stalin under different circumstances but like you know what i mean like these big giant like dualisms or something
1: yeah like why it's like those problems aren't resolved
0: yeah i mean it kind of just gives you like a sense of yeah like the recentness of these things that seem so far away to us like these things that were established well let's say even starting with catherine in the 18th century it's like that those decisions like have ramifications have ramifications now and i mean that's probably true of like all history and time and places
1: (laughs) but but it's it's almost easier to understand because like I don't know, like Crimea is small and there's like key events that are obviously repeated.
0: Yeah. And it's also important to note also as a big picture, like not just these big parallel events that are happening. um, And also, as I mentioned, that parallel with like how Stalin behaves towards different ethnicities like the Jews and the Crimean Tatars after the war. Not only are those those kinds of big temporal parallels, there's also just like this general thing in the history of Crimea where... Crimea is always kind of seen as a like a between place like it's a place that is potentially dangerous to these big empires
1: A real quick just summary of what happened, and then we can try to discuss the legality of it after, okay? Okay. It's kind of like a time of mayhem, right? Like, there's two parallel things going on which make it possible for the annexation to happen. So there's, on the one hand, like, Ukraine is experiencing civil unrest because Yanukovych, who was the president at the time in, like, 2013, late 2013, doesn't sign I don't know, like the application or whatever it's called for the Ukraine to be admitted into the EU. That ignites a bunch of protests called like the Euro Maiden Movement, which was Midon. basically resulted in. Oh, sorry, Euro Maiden. Um, which, which. <laughs> what maiden? It just yeah. <laughs> which um. Resulted in in Yanukovych being ousted and him actually, like, running to Russia for safety. Okay, so the Euromaidan movement is, like, generally more liberal and more Western-focused because they want to be part of the EU. So so while that's happening in February of 2014, Crimea, which has, like, a very large Russian population, is not pro-Euromaidan because there's kind of these two, like, pulling forces in Ukraine, it's like, oh, do we want to be more Western and be part of the European Union? Or do we want to be more aligned with Russia? And Yanukovych was on the more aligned with Russia side, as we'll learn many, many, the majority of the population in Crimea, because many of them are ethnically Russian, whatever that means. It's like, it seems like a weird distinction to me, but okay, they're ethnically Russian, they speak Russian ancestrally, their relatives are from like Russia mainland. And so, so what happens during this time is kind of piggybacking on this mayhem that's happening in the in greater Ukraine, people in Crimea start protesting anti-Euromaidan, right? And around this time, and this is all within like a four week span, within this time, these soldiers start showing up in the streets of Crimea and they're dubbed little green men or like polite police. And they're unmarked. It doesn't say which country from they're from, but the accusation is that they're Russian soldiers. And there there are Russian soldiers in Crimea because Russia leases this base from... From Ukraine, but they're not supposed to like just go out and about, obviously, into Ukrainian territory. And so, okay, yeah, you have these you have these protests that are going on in Crimea that are anti Euromaidan. The Ukrainian president has been ousted and replaced with an in- interim president, and these little green men are showing up on the streets of Crimea. Basically, what ends up happening is that the Russian government agrees to secure a vote for a referendum that would basically say okay the will of the Crimean people is that they want to uh be annexed by Russia and become part of part of the Russian state
0: isn't it like they want to become independent and then become part of they want to become a republic within the Russian Federation yeah
1: yeah so how this vote takes place and i think this happens on in like early march i want to say um is that these little green men and and there's at this time there's also like roving bands of like militants and then there's also the night wolves which is we can get into later are also there we'll we'll talk about them later and and then there's these soldiers that putin is claiming aren't russian
0: yeah he's claiming they're part of the like pro-russian self-formed militants
1: Milit- militia yeah which there are those there are those but these people have russian guns and russian like tanks and stuff registered to the crimean base they, they just are russian soldiers
0: or they just have the weapons but anyway
1: either way like russia is involved yeah but like they're in full russian like like they look professional you know they don't look like militants fair sure okay Okay, so so this referendum takes place in the Crimean parliament and it takes place under siege from like these little green men. Like they're occupying the parliament building and this referendum basically to vote on whether or not independence will happen is voted for in like the council members, I guess. Vote in favor of holding this referendum that will determine if Crimea will be a independent like state.
0: Wait, I just I want to comment on something you already said, which is just like we mentioned Maidan and the war in Ukraine on the territory of Eastern Ukraine that's continu- that continues today. We're not going to touch on it uh in detail at all in this episode, but it is important to note that Maidan and those protests which were right like spurred by this issue of does Ukraine join the EU or does Ukraine not join the EU. And the West thinks of generally the protesters as being, right, like people who wanted to join the EU. That's what you said. But it's really important to note that in those protesters, there's a lot of like super, super nationalist neo-Nazi people as well. Elements, we can call them. So the question of sort of like the how much the U.S. government, for example, wants to align themselves with these protesting people who are eventually become also put in interim government in Ukraine is very questionable.
1: You know what I mean? Like, that's actually something that like comes up. So th- there was like three little like juicy tidbits that I texted you that I wanted to talk about. One of them was was the little green men. The other one was that right around this time in February, as like these like militias are sort of forming in Crimea, there's a pamphlet that's being uh, circulated or a flyer rather within Crimea, and I, I just want to pull it up. Leaflet calling Sevastopol residents to sign up for the militia says the blue, black, brown Euro plague is knocking, and th- there was speculation, or maybe people actually know that blue refers to homosexuality, and then the brown refers to fascism, and that was like a theme that I kept noticing. It was also something that the Night Wolves, who are this like Russian Orthodox motorcycle gang basically during this time these night wolves who have connections to putin and like every time i would read about some connection they're like yeah putin goes on rides with him on his trike (laughs) what people are being so petty about it they're like but for safety he was on his trike because they're all on like harley's and he's on one of those like three motorcycles you know oh It's true. That's so funny. The it's tricycle and motorcycle. Okay. The night wolves bring it up, and these pamphlets bring it up. Which is like, it seems to me that Russia still uses the threat of fascism to generate like public support for a given, you know, movement or like imperialistic thing. The other example I have of this is is that Navalny is often uh called it called a fascist
0: oh yeah okay yeah if you're just talking about you're talking about calling people fascists you're talking about the gay
1: well the gay thing is interesting because we did talk about before how left liberal people used to call used to paint fascists as gay because of the whole like father figure thing and so there is definitely like some weird crossover there that like isn't obvious to us because i don't associate fascism and homosexuality but there there was like some sort of propaganda around that.
0: Okay, so as we talked about what what episode did we talk about that on?
1: I don't remember, but but yeah, it's like there's two branches. The right talks about homosexuality as in America, if this is specifically America, as communist because they they're like ethically rootless and they're um what's the word for it? Like homosexuality is like inherently like i want to say like gratuitous or it's almost the same way that that stalin would talk about the jews decadent yeah like rootless cosmopolitans
0: i was about to make that yeah parallel because it actually is literally the same like using this word rootless cosmopolitans and then in america mccarthyism mccarthyists are saying that gay people are rootless communist (laughs) elements yeah um yeah and on the left Gay people are at some point portrayed in America as as fascists. This is this is the history of like a kind of a type of homophobia. Your suspicion of contemporary Russian rhetoric, official rhetoric, using fascism to like garner support right now and sort of like whip up um, patriotism is extremely real. It's so real that like I almost like it's funny because you're talking about it like I feel it. You're like kind of like tiptoeing around it. You're like. I think it's a thing. It's like definitely a thing. And like on TV in Russia, on state TV, like since this, since, since the whole thing with Maidan started, the people fighting against the pro-Russian fighters are called fascists, like in general. Very important because fascist is just taken directly from World War II rhetoric about Nazis and placed onto these people so it's it's an important term because that term can like slide around and for russia it's extremely important because it's like an emotional trigger from world war ii
1: yeah i I wanted to make that point like it's an emotional trigger but not only that it like harkens on to a time when the soviet union like saved the world from fascism and so there Mm. there's like this weird pairing of like responsibility right so like if the soviet union at the time viewed itself as like the savior in the face of fascism. It, it makes sense to draw on it later because you can say like, oh, well, we have historically been the the defenders against fascism. And so like there's some amount of nostalgia that's in that. And there's some amount of like, well, it is our duty to fight against it. So if you just, like, yeah, like you say, take this term and slide it around and put it on whoever you want, then it's like, oh, well, the Russian duty is to protect against fascism. We've been doing that, you know, for the past century or whatever. So it, it seems like a good propaganda tactic. And I I don't know what the, like, a equivalent is in America, like... There's, I mean, terrorists maybe terrorism. Yeah, definitely now is the new wave thing. But, but Uh, like, but we also we also use the word fascist. We
0: we slide it around. It's it's actually. I mean, it's important as we've already said that there really are some super radical yeah fascist people involved, uh, nationalists yeah like anti-semitic there really are like m- groups of people like that in in ukraine as anywhere but they're the minority so it's like it's not like in those protests in maidan they were they were the mass of people basically it's just that like with any extremist minorities like they
1: they exist just like re like looking at the stuff about fascism but i was just thinking about right after trump was elected and everybody's like hey stop just. Uh, and yeah, i feel no. like that really hasn't turned out to be true
0: <laughs> yes, it's like this is the thing this is you're laughing but that that's what freaks me out it's like i mean that really that's not what freaks me out that i remember that and people will still say that and that really scares yeah, yeah. me like when yeah american media and politics and even mainstream rhetoric is very much guilty of the same type of like really kind of inappropriate labeling and of course like people have broken that down like you know people will write an article like what elements of trump's behavior like make him fascist or uh, as a leader right like fascist tendencies and because there's always like a nugget of truth there it's just it's very problematic to just be like trump evil Fascist. fascist The same way as it's problematic to be, like, Putin evil fascist. It's always problematic to say someone's evil. I mean, maybe that's not true. Maybe it's, like, not problematic to say that Hitler's evil. Um, But I just, like, don't (laughs) enjoy. Maybe we should include, should not include this on the episode. But, like, I don't, I always. I don't enjoy. (laughs) Why don't you enjoy? (laughs) I don't enjoy, like, yeah, I don't enjoy discussions that arise around calling a person evil, usually. It just, like, doesn't. They don't usually have a lot of, like, nuance. It's just, like, a lot of emotional anger and not particularly informed. The thing, I think, that we've talked about a lot with, with like, the, the the new Cold War, Cold War II rhetoric, which is a whole, like, whole... The whole thing is, like, regurgitating old labels and old rhetoric. Okay, but you see, like, members of the intelligentsia of America using these terms i mean it's not a new thing they, they they use them about putin and now they use them about trump but do you see what i'm saying about like the educated left and how like this the whole the whole the rhetoric that the, the the feeling discomfort with labeling that we're talking about seems to be like a super 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 minority of people feel this discomfort
1: <laughs> yeah i think that is a discomfort that could be kind of easily taught though yeah, but I just feel like I've always balked, always like at when we're talking I've about I've always leaders. been a proponent of not calling people
0: evil. No, since like 1939. No, I mean, I mean, really, like about world leaders, and it, it's like I've always like in. I mean, obviously, I won't get into an argument about Hitler. Like, I would never be like, don't call him evil. But like, I am a proponent of thinking more along the like a rent. Like the banality of evil lines, which yeah, not I understand. It's a more sort of collective. It's not like Hitler was like this evil guy and, and Trump's this evil guy and everyone else is innocent.
1: Is there an archetype of evil, or you're you're adamantly like across the board against talking about it in those terms and more about talking about like components or processes that are evil?
0: I'm yeah, I'm more talking. I'm more
1: interested in
0: at least like the conversation would be more interesting to me if we could talk about not not necessarily the processes but the whole structure, like the the apparatus under which governments commit huge crimes against humanity or, like, states before, you know, whatever, bodies, large governing bodies.
1: Okay, but you admit that there are, like, portions of a person, however you want to, like, conceptualize that, that are evil, right? Right. Like, what do you call somebody who does mostly evil things? Like, in the same way that you call, like, let's say you you call somebody happy because they're happy the majority of the time. Like, as a happy person, I'm happy the majority of the time. Or as, like, a generous person, I do more acts that are generous than not generous. So, like, what do you call somebody who does acts that are mostly evil most of the time?
0: It's hard for me to answer that question because when you talk about happiness, it's very, very different from talking about this basically religious polarization of good and evil conception of good and evil which is a which is a a duality that is also potentially like i mean it really doesn't need to be a duality but it is and it's embedded in like religious ideology of like multiple traditions and what then at the end of the day you have to ask yourself well what is evil so if you say someone is evil or if you say they do a majority of evil things what does that mean and maybe it's not so
1: hard maybe we're just saying like harming a lot of people that that the, the majority of acts they do have more expansive harm than they have expansive cause heart. more people
0: suffering than they cause not suffering um in those terms yeah like i I mean, I think that you can blame I definitely think it's like totally realistic and and legitimate to like blame certain world leaders of these apparatuses that I reference. But it's just like more interesting to me to talk about the like underlying or the whole the whole system, I guess that those rulers run and how that happens, like how their individuality kicks into gear a whole bunch of other people's actions. Right. and like, that is really
1: crazy to me because if it was just one person in their evilness wouldn't actually be expansive like they wouldn't they wouldn't be able to implement
0: yeah if it's sort of obvious like they wouldn't be able to do as much harm because they wouldn't have all their little yeah. like subjects doing the harm i mean that's what's important to think about because that's when you start getting the individual starts to be sort of implicated like this the citizen of the place yeah that that's just it, it's really not me trying to be like relativist and saying like well, what is evil actually? Did they really do a bad thing? It's not about that. It's just like shifting the focus a little
1: I bit. I think the most compelling thing you've said to me about about like not wanting to view evil in those terms is like this idea that it is it is actually a Christ, Christian conception and that that duality is, is inherently false and it's like really just not, I agree with you, it's not interesting and it also plays into like, Maybe this is stretching this term too far, but this like cult of personality where you just like take an individual and ascribe all the components of the system to that one person. And that ultimately ends up not being particularly good for understanding how to prevent it in the future.
0: I mean, yeah, so I guess we got on a little like term tangent,
1: but I, I think it's an interesting tangent. Fascism, fascism. I also just want to real quick address like the fact that there is this paradox, which we talked about, and which is probably obvious to a lot of people, but I just want to state it because it's it. I think it kind of frames the legal question. Well, which is that the implications of Russia going into another country and taking a portion of that country feels just like not correct. Right. But then it's paired with the fact that the people in that area voted overwhelmingly so. And polls have shown conducted by like Gallup and reputable American companies that the support for that was there overwhelmingly. So like in the mid 90s. And so and so you run into this paradox where it's like, well, yeah, on the one hand, it seems really not good that Russia would set this precedent that allows them to just like take territories. But then it's paired with the fact that the people wanted it. A lot of what we're going to talk about when it comes to legality is this paper we both read called The Crimea Crisis, An International Law Perspective authored by Christian Markson.
0: Like all the headlines in 2014 when this was happening in the West were all like, illegal annexation, illegal da-da-da. And we just wanted to sort of talk about why it's legal because, again, as I said before, it's not super, super clear. It's really not clear. The status of Crimea before the annexation is
1: can you search it within the article Article 2 of the Constitution of Ukraine establishes that Ukraine shall be a unitary state and that the territory of Ukraine within its present border is indivisible and inviolable. This is confirmed in regard to Crimea by Chapter 10 of the Constitution, which provides for the autonomous status of Crimea. Article 134 sets forth that Crimea is an inseparable constituent part of Ukraine. The autonomous status provides Crimea with a certain set of authorities and allows inter alia i don't know what that means to hold referendums so i guess it allows the crimean um, parliament to hold referendums these rights how are, are however limited to local matters the constitution makes clear that alterations to the territory of ukraine require an all ukrainian referendum the, the two mainly gaudy questions are about yeah The Russian intervention in Crimea and the legality of the Crimean secession from Ukraine, which includes both the referendum and the Declaration of Independence. So I think first we can address, like, what was the legality of the Russian intervention in Crimea? Two justifications that could be used. One is the protection of nationals abroad and of the Russian-speaking population. And the other idea is... And the other is the idea of, um, like, invitation by that country. So, like, if Ukraine invites... Russian intervention
0: basically this author the author of the paper we're referencing as you said he looks at those two big potential justifications that that Putin has voiced which is like I'm protecting Russians who are here who are going to be like who are in danger because of the everything happening in Ukraine with Maidan etc these people are in danger I want to protect them that's one justification the other one is that apparently Yanukovych after he had been ousted and ousted means voted out of office, like, formerly, right? He was, like, impeached. Yanukovych technically invited Russia to help, to intervene militarily. And the question is, is either of those things legitimate? Is it protecting the Russian people there? And is Yanukovych's invitation legitimate? And this guy's like, no. And he, like, breaks it down why. But basically, neither of them are legitimate under international law
1: under international law. Yeah, and I and I think the the reason why the first argument isn't legitimate is that according to this UN Charter, there there must be evidence that the life of a state's citizens is in danger on the territory of another state and also that the other state must be unwilling or unable to offer sufficient protection. And he's he's basically making the argument like, "Oh, no, the the Russian speaking people in crimea weren't under particular threat due to euromaidan
0: and even if they were it's still up to the russian government the invading party so to speak to provide this like concrete evidence which didn't happen and there's some confusion around like are we talking when we talk about nationals versus like russian speaking people there is also a confusion there and that's just because of like the very recent history of the fall of the soviet union where like there wasn't necessarily such a big differentiation, those two justifications like rescuing your people and invitation in this particular case, those two reasons for having military presence are deemed invalid under
1: international law as held up by the UN, right? Yeah, I mean, they're not deemed invalid. It's just that there needs to be rigorous enough justification and that justification isn't there.
0: Like, right now, those just the, the justification isn't legally backed. Like, you can say it sort of emotionally, but it doesn't
1: hold up legally, basically. Well, it doesn't hold up legally because, so this is a quote, as a measure of the responsibility to protect... An authorization of the Security Council would be necessary. So basically, you would have to present to the Security Council, which is like a collection of about five nations in the UN, the US, Russia, China, and then there's two others. I, I want to say France and, and Britain, and they have a lot of like power around like how these nations behave but we won't go into that but basically like russia would have to bring like evidence that there was human rights severe enough human rights violations against this russian-speaking minority and the security council would have to like okay it for there to be intervention for humanitarian reasons and that process just didn't happen
0: Okay, so yeah, what you just said and was about the rescuing citizens justification, just a little a, a little more about the other justification, which is like a government can invite another government to bring help in in the form of military troops, right. Right. right? And the whole like why Yanukovych's invitation quote unquote isn't legitimate legally. So first of all, we don't know the content of this like invitation. It's not it's not open. Right. It's in a letter. It's in a letter. letter. You can't like read that letter. The fact of the invitation, it happened after Yanukovych was voted out of office, which there's also a weird moment there because technically, so he's been he's been voted out of office, like impeached and he like fled the country. So he doesn't have any real authority in terms of like, he can't like make a decision about Ukraine. He's not, like, actually the leader of Ukraine in reality. And, like, de facto, I think is what the ter- the term is.
1: Yeah, there's two, like, components that make up whether or not somebody has, like, the capacity to invite a foreign power into their country. And that is, like, both, a f- like, effective rule, which, like, are they effectively the leader and are they also legally the ruler? And And the argument that Russia is making is that Yanukovych is actually still president of Ukraine precisely because... The way that he was voted out was illegal, according to the Ukrainian constitution. So, you, right.
0: So, when we reference the you, we reference the Ukrainian constitution, saying that like, oh, well, we, you read this whole passage about Ukrainian territorial integrity, how Crimea is very much a part of Ukraine in the constitution, but according to the same constitution, when they when the parliament voted to impeach or yeah, impeach um, Yanukovych. According to the constitution, you need to have a seventy-five. You need several things, but one of the things is that you need to have seventy-five percent of the parliament seated, whatever um, members, yeah, members vote in favor. And in this case, seventy-three percent, the three hundred twenty-eight votes voted, so it's obviously majority. But according to the constitution, it's not quite enough. That's so. When Putin made the argument, as you just said, he said like, well. Yanukovych, even after he was impeached, he wasn't legally impeached. He was illegally impeached. So it's like a little technicality that, like, I'm actually confused. So in the end, because you said you said one of two things has to be true, like they have to either be the effective leader or the legal leader, or they have to be both. Both
1: have to be true. He's not the legal leader though, because of the seventy five percent shit. Right. The seventy. They didn't have seventy five percent to vote him out, but he fled because he was fearing for his life. And Russia is making the argument that because he wasn't removed according to the Ukrainian constitution, he was still legally the leader, still the president of Ukraine, meaning
0: he could invite Russian troops in. Correct, but that's but yeah, but he wasn't effectively the leader, so it doesn't really matter.
1: He wasn't effectively the leader, and and this article also brings in other examples of times when leadership has been under international law, not legally allowed to invite other countries in. And one of those examples is South Africa during apartheid was not considered to be allowed to invite foreign states to intervene because of its internal political system. So there's also this precedent for like, if you're having some sort of civil war or internal dispute, then like the legality around whether or not you can invite foreign states in is, is more murky. And that was obviously happening in Ukraine. But it's confusing because then Bashar al-Assad invites the Russians in. So now I'm a little confused, but we won't deal with that.
0: We just talked about um, a number of justifications for having Russian government troops, official troops in Crimea before and after the referendum. But like, let's say before, because that's sort of like what's referred to as this like military pressure um, in Crimea. Now the other the other big thing is like okay so there's the military troops question then there's the question of the legitimacy basically of this referendum that voted to go join Russia right
1: right right L- let's talk about I just the one thing I w- I want to reiterate what I said before cuz now we're actually in that place so By what? So, yeah, just going back to the idea that the Ukrainian Constitution makes it clear that any alterations to the territory requires an all-Ukrainian referendum. So, like, holding this referendum violated Ukrainian law, but that doesn't mean that it violated international law, because it's an internal affair. I just want to real quick note, like, so So there's, like, international standards by which these sorts of referendums should be introduced, um, and like very mundane things like another requirement of the freedom of election. So the way election should be held is that the question of the referendum is clear and not misleading. The phrasing must allow a simple yes or no answer. So now I'm just going to read like what the Crimean referendum actually said. One, are you in favor of the Autonomous Republic of Crimea reuniting with Russia as a constituent part of the Russian Federation? Or two, are you in favor of restoring the constitution of the Republic of Crimea of 1992 and of Crimea's status as part of Ukraine? Um, And the important part of this was there was no option to maintain the status quo, which in which Crimea formed part of Ukraine under the current Ukrainian constitution. It's good that you read the actual wording of the referendum, but like people just... The people who are voting in Crimea are
0: just thinking, go to Russia, not go to Russia. Right, right yeah the the sort of nuances of the second option aren't as important i guess for them no but but that's like a really important thing and that the whole so that makes the referendum invalid that it has two questions that it's not a yes or no question right on the one hand
1: no no because it's it's not it's not international law it's just an international standard but basically his conclusion is that like holding the referendum does violate ukraine's national law it doesn't violate international law but it did not comply with international standards in regard to its modalities Um, and and again it's hard it's this thing where like oh like yeah okay it's not an international law but even international standards are really just like this is what we all decided we think we should do but like it's really just based on the hope that people adhere to these things like there's no enforcement of it
0: well Sort of, because the enforcement would be like sanctioning countries like we're seeing now.
1: Yeah, but even still, that doesn't it, you know, with internal law, it's it's almost easier because you just like pluck a person and you like charge them a shit ton of money or you put them in jail. But you don't have that sort of like uh, minute control on an international yeah, scale yeah and
0: it's and the international law is more collective and like it's supposed to be right. yeah, it's supposed to be everyone agrees to these things and follow these norms but yeah that's the thing like a their norms b the the language is often quite ambiguous unfortunately and the, the author of this paper also makes that point like basically it can be interpreted in various ways and it has been and like um i, keep, I, want, I want to talk about kosovo
1: yeah i mean that's the next thing to talk about like
0: one of the examples of when international law in a sort of parallel situation was interpreted dif- differently, like the outcome was like the opposite of the outcome with Crimea, is Kosovo receding, seceding is from... Is that how do you pronounce it? That's how you pronounce it in Russian. I don't know. Well, but it's not a Russian. It's not Russian. Serbian. Yeah, but Russians are actually pretty good at preserving the like pronunciation of the... Native
1: country. Americans pronounce it Kosovo. Kosovo? Yeah.
0: Ah, yeah, okay, that's just a Russian, like, linguistic thing where, like, any unstressed O is pronounced as an uh. Uh, yeah. So, Kosovo seceded from Serbia. When? Uh, In 2008. And when, like, Putin's speaking about the Crimean annexation, along with the other justifications, he based... Hit the crimea secession on the precedent of kosovo because the sort of argument behind that was it was not possible basically it was like not safe for the people in kosovo to be part of serbia and the the argument that was used for their secession was self-determination of a like uh area like a state or whatever usually in international law the norm is that self-determination, quote-unquote, like having a sort of autonomous status or independent status, is you're only allowed to do that with, like, internally, right? Like, within right, the... Right.
1: within the Self-determination big... doesn't mean seceding.
0: Yeah, it means, like, what does it mean? It means, like, you have independent status because you need to secure the rights of the people, like, the minority group within the larger state, right? Right, right. yeah. So it's, all, it's supposed to be, like, internal. That's the norm. But again, it's just a norm, and... In the situation with Kosovo, um, the Western countries of the UN uh, in favor of letting Kosovo secede was ostensibly there have been such horrible humanitarian violations, yeah, against Kosovo, that, like the people in Kosovo, that like this is a, this is an extreme case. They need to be able to secede. There's just no way for them to survive as being part of Ser- Serbia. But so humanitarian concern is the public kind of reasoning
1: but, but yeah i think i think the important part of this was like the kosovo secession sort of set up um a precedent that didn't exist before and the way that it was handled at the time they were trying to say like oh no this is an exception not a precedent um but then like putin comes back after the crimean referendum um and this address to the public what do you want me to read this quote that he talks about kosovo sure We keep hearing from the United States and Western Europe that Kosovo is some special case. What makes it so special in the eyes of our colleagues? It turns out that this is the fact that the conflict in Kosovo resulted in so many human casualties. Is this a legal argument? The ruling of the international court says nothing about this. This is not even double standards. This is amazing, primitive, blunt cynicism. One should not try to so crudely to make everything suit their interests, calling the same thing white today and black tomorrow. According to this logic, we have to make sure every conflict leads to human losses. Um, And this is like sort of tangential, but I have noticed that there's this trend in like politics and commentary of calling people cynical in this like derogatory way. And I'm not, I haven't seen enough yet to understand like why it's being used that way, but it just feels like, oh, are you so cynical about the world that you don't think it could ever be better? That like, the only way is to have human loss. And it's just like this weird, I don't know. I don't know what it is. It's like this weird alt way of being optimistic that's not actually optimistic. I don't know. I I mean, yeah, it's it's super political
0: rhetoric gaming because like, well, Putin, for example, people love to call Putin cynical. That's a, a very common critique of him. Which is funny. And he's he's generally good with like political rhetoric at sort of flipping things on flipping things around, like using the same rhetoric against the people who used it. I mean, in general, like this is this is Putin at his prime, like he's good at pointing out hypocrisy that is actually like very sort of potent emotionally and and based in a reality, Uh, again, like a sort of political, emotional, almost moral reality. Where you're like, hey, yeah, wait a minute. When it was good for the West, they said that was okay. But then when it's good for Russia to have an exception to the norm of international law, it's not okay. Like on a level that is very convincing. And that's what he's best at because the legality is much more clear once you actually like wade through all of it. So another sort of like argument or like thing at play in the West's desire to let Kosovo secede is like with this humanitarian argument is the fact that western states didn't these same western states didn't intervene in the Rwandan genocide that fact that like guilt is also at play here because there's this is this the sort of feeling being that like we don't want to fuck up this time like we need to we need to do something and and yeah and Putin references that by saying like okay so for it to be okay, like, more people have to die? Is that what you're saying? It's kind of like a snarky, twisted argument. Um, And you're kind of like, yes, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I guess so. (laughs) This self-determination being interpreted as secession, like with Kosovo, this exception, it's an exception because of of its, like, the extreme extremity of of the situation, basically, like... That was the argument. Like, yes, a lot of people were dying.
1: That's all about Kosovo, probably. Let's see. I mean, I think honestly, like, that's it. That's about it. The the one other thing that we we kind of forgot to note is that Russia and Ukraine prior to this conflict had like different treaties from over time. That I think that I would like to at least.
0: You mean about treaties about like how they wouldn't invade each other and how they would like work together and da da da. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Exactly. Yeah. And about their territorial. Integrity. Right. And about their territorial integrity. And and those ones were violated. Right. But the again, the argument that, that the Russian government makes is that like they no longer had to um,
0: abide by laws of the Ukrainian government because they said post Maidan, this is a totally new state. Right. We don't recognize that this is the same state as pre Maidan, which is right, like. Exactly. Not which is actually. <laughs>
1: Plus, Putin's like, except for their debts, they still have to pay their debts back.
0: Yeah. No, but it's, it's, I mean, I don't think it's absurd. Like, I sort of, again, intuitively, I'm like, oh, I guess, okay. But it's just, it's a regime change. That's what happened during Maidan and the revolution. But this law that, that the Russian government invokes to say, like, well, after the revolution, then it's a totally different state with no obligations that it had before. They're, they're, Um, modeling that on the the bolshevik revolution when basically after 1917 after the revolution the new government right the soviet government was like we don't recognize our obligations our legal obligations that came from the russian empire because now we're a different country
1: and that's the precedent for that which is but but that no but that precedent is you saying internally we're a different country whereas what russia is doing in this case is saying no ukraine you're a new country and therefore we're not going to fulfill our obligations yeah to. but
0: it's like the overall argument being like after a revolution it's a whole free-for-all totally new place i don't know what you saying. weird i can do a current status like summary
1: yeah yeah i think the current status is good but real quick because we're at two hours and 40 minutes the current status
0: is again like a dual one because it's like there is like a parallel universe happening right now under international law crimea still belongs to ukraine and actually under international law the states that recognize the international law are obligated to actively not recognize crimea as an independent state which effectively is also not recognizing crimea as part of russia that's on the one hand russian law and also sort of reality side yeah people (laughs) crimea is part of russia now and there are a lot of implications of that they're on moscow time they're on the ruble Yeah. And also people have to like people have like Russian passports. People were issued passports. Um a lot of people like Ukraine ethnic Ukrainians and other minorities Crimean Tatars, Tatars, Jesus. Again like left Crimea after the annexation. So there's been a there's been a population shift. Like the Russian majority is even more majority now. Now apparently on the one hand, like, it's like part of Russia, and a lot of people were like, yeah, like, Crimea is, like, it's our land now, blah, blah, blah. But everything has gotten more expensive there, whereas it used to be, like, a cheap place to vacation because of when it was part of Ukraine. Um, It's not, like, super expensive, but it's definitely more expensive now. But yeah, the parallel universe thing is really
1: kind of astounding when you just think about it. Like, I mean, I wouldn't say it's astounding. It's just, like, it's silly, and it's obviously silly.
0: Well, okay, fine. It's not a sounding, But just what's what's the, the plan here? Because, like, the plan so far has been to sanction Russia, put, like, make sanctions against the Russian yeah. government in order for them to, like, reverse all of that. But that's just, like, not going to happen.
1: No, it's not going to happen. But I think, I don't think that people believe that it's going to happen. I think that more there's just, like, an optics obligation where, like, they can't acquiesce but but i was reading an article today that was talking about um a german politician who was like we just need to basically saying we need to like encapsulate the crimea thing and just like leave it alone because it's it's like obstructing our ability to to negotiate with moscow and other things
0: diplomatic things and trade economic yeah just like like
1: if we have if this if crimea is like this constant like discussion that has to happen with moscow before anything else can get done then nothing else can get done because it's like you say it's it's not it's likely not to change in the in the near future and it's combined with this fact that the people there voted for it so it's like who are you even protecting i guess like ukraine's sovereignty which is like a valid thing to protect but i don't know it's too confusing i I want to i want to shift though let's i want to real quick just touch on like why we think putin wanted to do this the overall thing is that they were in
0: the protests in Maidan were in favor of Ukraine becoming part of the EU, so like moving away from from Russia, which is something that the that Russia does not Russian government does not want. All the countries in Eastern Europe to be part of NATO and the EU. On the one hand, Putin or like the Russian government is like we need to get our naval base and make sure it's for sure ours because this shit could be, they could they like we had this agreement with Ukraine in two thousand ten where we like decided to like you know. prolongate our lease on the naval base that we can still have our stuff there but like this is a dangerous and chaotic time and we need to make sure we for sure have that naval base which is in crimea again sevastopol i think that's one big reason the other reason i think i mean there's a huge just a lot of patriotic symbolic uh what do you call that points like that you get for this um capital capital yeah a lot of a lot of symbolic capital having you know showing russians at home on the homeland all like all this tv footage of all these crimean ethnic russian people in crimea with russian flags like right when, around the referendum vote like being like singing and dancing me like we love russia like yeah. Putin yeah. love and like showing that on you know tv everywhere in russia and being like look how much they love us like we're gonna go with the will of the people i mean yeah so much capital it also signaled a kind of it was it, it was a big signal sort of in like i don't know the general kind of liberal population of russia like this was putin's third term things hadn't been as bad in his first two terms in terms of his like bad shit happened but it hadn't been as like tense especially with like other countries this was sort of like a signal of like oh shit shit is about to get really bad and it did i mean we point in our podcast description we point to this like, all this shit happening in, in Ukraine and Crimea is sort of like the the new wave of extreme tension between the West and Russia. Yeah. <sighs> okay. So basically, like, my friend Molly, uh, maybe I shouldn't say her name. I'll ask her later. American living in Russia, went to visit Crimea in the winter. She she went all around Crimea, stayed in different places. One of the things was that she uh, stayed in a hostel whose owner was Ukrainian, and one of the things she told me was that he wouldn't speak about anything political in the hostel. And the only time he spoke about like the annexation and what happened to him and like his his sort of personal story was when they went on this like hike out in like the mountains somewhere. Oh, and he interesting. was like and he but he was very explicit about it. He was like people are like ratting out other people um if you say something sort of, like anti-Russian or like negative about the annexation like people will tell on you to whom the police and
1: then what happens
0: that's the question then what happens like you can be arrested you could be arrested and maybe scary things could happen but i think the idea is like you don't even want to like definitely don't want to be put on the map like that especially if you're an ethnic ukrainian and basically that he like all his friends and family all moved back to ukraine and he he decided to stay in crimea for a number of reasons, but he has this hostel and like right after the annexation, his hostel was closed. Like he lost a bunch of money because his hostel was closed for a while. And like obviously that there was tourism has picked up. But right after the annexation, there was like yeah a dip in tourism because people were like, what the fuck is going on there in the case in his personal case? So then he reopens his hostel a year after the annexation, but then he gets sick. And like so this is a Ukrainian guy. He he's not admitted into the hospitals in Crimea because he doesn't have a Russian passport.
1: Wait, so why does he, did he explain why he wanted to stay there? Just because, like, it's his home?
0: Yeah, I mean, he, he. this is in Yalta, I mean, he just, like, loves it, and uh, I think he has a family. But At some point, he had to go back to Ukraine to get, like, medical help, and I, I guess maybe at some point he got the Russian passport. But the, this transfer of, like, what happened to people who, who weren't Russian, yeah, it, like, it definitely was messy, and, like, and scary. And so yeah, so he he felt like, you know, maybe something was bugged in the house or he didn't want someone to overhear. But like, yeah, he didn't feel comfortable talking about in general, like, you don't talk about the annexation and stuff like in public places. Trust me when I say nothing's in my way.
1: Alright, that's the episode. Thank you for listening. Be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at She's in Russia. You can go to our website, She's in Russia.com, and sign up for our newsletter and you can also call in and leave us a voice message at 347-292-7126. Uh, nobody's going to pick up the phone so you don't have to worry about talking to a real person and we will see you next week. Boop, boop, beep. <laughs> oh my god. At the lake all the... <laughs> Uh, god i can't remember but what why we're having this conversation but izzy was telling the story about how she and lena sent (laughs) oh my god an email to like your art teacher or something impersonating you asking him to hike on the pacific (laughs) trail (laughs) that
0: is part of a Lena-led thing that happened that was basically cyberbullying in school, which is what they like- would just like. They would seriously, they people ganged up on me. No, because in my friend group, I feel like I was often the butt of people's jokes because I like took it relatively well, but I was really pissed about that. We were in high school; it was like really inappropriate. We were in <laughs> high school, and according to, they sent an email from my account to this art teacher that was like. No, no, not our teacher. He was our physics teacher. Oh he's like a God. super outdoorsy, like also kind of youngish guy, but I think he's like married. Anyway, he was like <laughs> asking, like ser- seriously asking him if he wanted to hike the Pacific Crest Trail with me, a, a solo hike with the two of us.